Those of you at home, you probably can't tell, but I was just sitting over here, and sometimes people think if I'm not up doing all the motions for VBS and all that kind of stuff that I think it's beneath me. If you saw the character I played at VBS, you will know that there is nothing beneath me. I'm just a sweater. I sweat on a reasonably cool day, and this sermon is long. Uh, we've adjusted the service. You'll get out of here pretty close to on time. I'm going to tell you a little story as to why, um, uh, or as to how, how to take it. But um, so, no, uh, it, it, it has nothing to do with what I think is beneath me. There's nothing I won't do for the kids. But Kurt did a great job, and yeah, it's creaky. So... When I was, uh, I was a CRC pastor for years, and I'm going to tell the story because that's where I heard it, and I don't know if it's a true story or not, but I really like it. So the CRC pastor and this Catholic priest, um, they, they had churches near each other, and they wanted to, they wanted to, to understand each other a little bit better. And so um, the CRC pastor on one Sunday went to Mass where the priest was officiating, and they assigned to the pastor a... Uh, a Eucharistic minister, someone who knows very well the liturgy of the church, who also helps serve uh, Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. And so the gathering time before, the pastor would ask a couple of questions. And during the service, when they have to get down on their knees and back up, and, and why, do you, why do you, I always wondered, why do you pray to Mary? Well, if you think about it, when Mary in John chapter 2 at the wedding at Cana, and Jesus said, it's not my time, but mom just kind of looked at him and went, come on. And so there, there, there's that special relationship between uh, Jesus and his mother. And so one of the reasons that we want to, we want to give her glory and honor. And, and then well, why isn't the, the homily or the, or the sermon the most important part of the, or the, or the thing that gets the most time and energy and effort in the service? And well, that's because we believe the Eucharist is the, is the pinnacle of the service. And so the, the, the CRC pastor walked out of there feeling like he had a pretty good idea of what and why and how and what the differences are. The next week, the priest shows up and the, the CRC church assigned an elder to him and gathering time beforehand and walk through the liturgy and what does it mean that we have the assurance of pardon and, and, and why, do we do, why do we do the Ten Commandments and, and that kind of thing in most of the services. And then the, t- the preacher got up and it was time to preach and the preacher did this. Took his watch and he laid it down on the pulpit and the priest says to the elder, what's, what's the significance, what does that mean? He goes, unfortunately, absolutely nothing. So before, today, before you cough, when you think it's time to land the plane, because usually at about 22 minutes, people are like, <coughs> we've adjusted the service accordingly. There are, there are too many chapters to cover. There's a lot of reading. I just want to make sure we have time to look at what God wants us to see through this, this, this story of Gideon. And I want, I want to ask you to do a couple of things going in. Number one, um, it is uncommon for me to stand up on a Sunday morning and counter what we may have learned in Sunday school. Because Gideon, there's some good stuff about Gideon. Gideon, he was reluctant, but he was obedient. And I don't want to take that away. And I don't want to take away the idea that sometimes we must lay a fleece out before the Lord. But I want you to know that the character of Gideon, as expressed in the book of Judges, chapter 6, 7, and 8, is not, he's not the hero of this story. And I want to look at him and be honest. And I'm going to ask you to look at him and be honest. And I want you always asking yourself this question as we read through it. I'm not countering what children are taught. uh, But I do think that if we look at this story, we will see more of ourselves. I'm not a big fan of Gideon. And it's because I see a lot of Trent in Gideon. And they're not good things that I'm seeing. So I'm asking you to ask yourself, as you hear this story read, as we talk about it, who 
is the hero in this story. By show of hands, I know it's weird, it feels like we're in a Southern Baptist church, but by show of hands, who has read or watched the movie trilogy on The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien? Okay, a few. Who's the hero in that story? All three books, all three movies. We think Frodo, right? Frodo, is it Frodo Baggins? Because he, he's the one with the ring, right? And he's the one going and, he, and he's the one. But Frodo's not the hero. Samwise Gamgee's the hero. Frodo doubted, he gave up, he gave in, he was tempted, he, he, but not Samwise. Every time Gollum came in and every time that the, the darkness was coming on Frodo, Samwise never lost sight of what he was supposed to do. He was a loyal companion and he always pulled Frodo back. The unlikely hero in a story is what we're looking for here. So I'm gonna offer a prayer and we'll get right into it. There's lots of reading. It'll be up on the screen, but track with me. It won't be boring if you, if you, uh, if you invest. So let's pray together. Lord, simply put, stand in my shoes, speak with my mouth, and give me your thoughts, because I don't want this message to be for them. I want it to be your message for us. So give us eyes to see, ears to hear what you want us to see and hear, and hearts to discern what you want to do differently in us, for us, and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. So it starts off. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, in caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the Mosquito Bites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Now, Two judges that we talked about ago, it took 20 years before they cried out to God. Last week when we talked about Deborah and that they were, that, that they were, they were oppressed by this evil general, Sisera, and it took them 18 years before they cried out to the Lord for help. He did awful, unspeakable things to the women and to the girls of the Israelites, and it took them 18 years to cry out. Here, their bellies are empty. And so they cry out after seven. It's awful, don't hear me wrong. You can't live without any food for seven years. You just can't do it. But it seems odd to me that they cry out to God quickly when their stomachs are grumbling and when they have to hide in caves and slowly when God-awful things are being done to their wives and to their daughters. So they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet. Now this is different than every other judge thus far in this book. They cried out to the Lord, the Lord sent them a judge. They cried out to the Lord, the Lord sent them a hero. Here they cried out to the Lord because they're crying out for, 
because of their bellies being empty and because all their work gets torn down and they have to live not in houses, but in, in caves, they cry out to the Lord and he sends them a prophet and he tries to offer them a correction as to this is why you should be crying out. He sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the, from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them, out, drove them from before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you've not listened to me. Okay. They're destroying all our stuff. They're killing all our animals. They're eating all our food. And then we have to pick up and start over. So bad that we have to hide so that they don't kill us. Just our crops, just our donkeys, just our sheep, just our cattle. And the Lord goes, so they're crying out, help us, save us. And he goes, okay. Remember who I am and remember what I told you. And then there's a transition the angel, not an angel, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak of Oprah that belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, a couple of things here, simple. I'm not convinced, but there is a school of thought in theological circles that believe that when God in the scripture says in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord, not an angel showed up, but the angel of the Lord, some people will argue that it is a pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity. So Christ, before he became Jesus. I don't know for sure. I do know there's another spot in the Old Testament, another another piece of verbiage that we hear this, and that is um, when, when one who looked like the Son of Man, remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they, uh, they get thrown into the furnace because they won't bend a knee to this evil emperor, and, and it, they look through the little window into the furnace, and they see not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, just three, but they see four, and it says, one who looked like the Son of Man, and they came out, and they didn't even smell like smoke. People will argue, and it may be true, that that's a pre-incarnate, an appearance of the second person of the Trinity, Christ, before he became incarnate in the person of Jesus by being birthed by Mary. Either way, we do know this. When it says the angel of the Lord, or when it says one who looked like the son of man, it is a big deal to God and to the authors of the Old Testament stories. Kind of like when Mary, when Gabriel shows up, not just an angel, but the angel shows up and says, you're going to give birth to a son. I've never been with a man. Well, here's what God's going to do. So when the angel of the Lord shows up, I would hope that I would respond in a positive way. I don't know how many of you believe that you've had angel appearances. I know that Lynn, when she was a teenager or maybe a young girl, she believes that she had an angel appearance. I believe I've had an angel appearance. I was in Winter Haven, Florida. I had had a terrible time. My dad and mom had just divorced. My dad had just gone bankrupt. I'm in this woe is me kind of a thing. And I went back, I was, I, I, someone said something awful what seemed awful to me as a high schooler when I was at a restaurant. I walked back to the church we were staying in. I sat down next to a tree um, in the church lawn and I'm just crying out to God. My head's kind of between my knees and I'm just, Lord, what is wrong with me? What is wrong with me? Can you fix me? 
And I look up and there's this old guy walking by. He's old guy, I say, I'm, I'm sure I'm older than he is now, or he was now, but um, gray hair, long, kind of in a braid with kind of a rope tied around it, pulled over one shoulder. And he's wearing those, this was cool in the 80s, but those kind of hemp um, pullover with the hoodie kind of a thing. And he walks up, so he's it's kind of an odd looking dude. And he walks up and I look up and he, may, he looks me right in the eye. He goes, what's the matter? I said, nothing. He goes, that's not true. You're feeling sorry for yourself. And I was like, yeah, whatever. And I put my head back down and then it hit me. I just asked the Lord, what's wrong with me? And this weird dude just told me, and I, and I won't tell you what the words that went through my head, but basically it was, you're me. You're kidding me. And I look up and the guy's gone. I mean, six seconds, I put my head down and the guy's gone. He showed up out of nowhere. He told me exactly what I needed to hear. I looked up and he's gone. Now you might think, okay, well, maybe that took a little longer when you put your head down. Maybe you were there 30, 40 seconds. He went down, turned a corner and he just disappeared. Okay, okay. I just know that my life changed because God answered my prayer and said, you're feeling sorry for yourself. So stop feeling sorry for yourself. And I still feel sorry for myself on occasion. But when I recognize that's what it is, I know that the Lord sent a messenger to me to tell me, that's not how I want you to be. So I would hope that if the angel of the Lord showed up to me and said, okay, Trent, mighty warrior, I'm gonna go, okay, God's got something he wants to do with me. But not, Gabe, or not, uh, not Gideon. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But sir, if the Lord was with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hands of Midian. So what Gideon said is, everything that's going on that's bad, God's fault. When God sent them a prophet and told them what's really going on, you're worshiping gods that you should not worship. In fact, they're worshiping Baal or Baal, um, where people are to sacrifice their children to appease this deity. It's an awful demonic thing. It's, they're worshiping the devil. But when an angel shows up and calls Gideon mighty warrior and tells him that the Lord is with him, he goes, no, he's not. In fact, all of this, God's fault. Then the Lord turned, not the angel, but the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord, if, but, but Lord, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest of Manasseh and I am the least of my family. Obviously this guy has not heard the stories Joshua is the book right before this one. It wasn't that long. It wasn't two, three, four hundred years ago that, that Joshua stood up and said, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. Whether it be the gods of the Amorites or the Lord who brought you out of Egypt and who gave you this land, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. He has not heard, apparently, and is not familiar with the fact that, that the people of God are the unexpected people that did an impossible thing in a ridiculous way. This is how God works. How can, how can I? That's like Moses, who didn't know the God that, that, that showed up, and he said, go let my people go. And he goes, I, 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 I. He, he had a stutter. And he goes, I can't do it. Who am I? And who should I tell him send me? Well, come on, send someone else. This is how God works. And Midian is so far gone, or excuse me, Gideon is so far gone because of Midian that he doesn't even have a sample or a sense of who God is and how he operates. In fact, never in this little spot here does Gideon refer to God as God, Yahweh. He always calls him the generic 
Lord, like the same kind of word you would have for Baal or any of the other pagan gods. But Lord, okay, we got that. The Lord answered, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites together. Gideon replied, if now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. Just ask yourself this question. If Jesus himself, if if there was no question about it, Jesus walked down that aisle right now and stood right there. I'm gonna sit down because his voice way over mine. And if he's sitting there and he's talking a little bit longer than I told you I was gonna talk, do you think that you would say to him, can you come back next week? I got things to do, dinner's in the oven. I mean, do you think you're gonna say, you wait, I go? Of course not. God gets your attention and you stay with God until God releases you. You don't even do this on Star Trek. May I be dismissed? No, you stay here, we're gonna talk. You don't leave until you're dismissed. But here, he says, will you wait for me? He's treating God like a pagan deity and not like the God of the universe. But God humors him. I'll wait until you return. Gideon went in, prepared a young goat, uh, and from an ephah, a flour, uh, he made bread without yeast. Putting the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot, he brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of God, the angel's back in, in, in here now, uh, said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread, pla- bread place it on, the, on this rock, and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. With the tip of the staff that he had in his hand, that was in his hand, the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread, Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread. And the angel of the Lord disappeared. And when Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, O sovereign Lord, still generic, not intimate Lord, um, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Now, let's just count this up for a second. If you're still wanting to root for Gideon, He, he sent a prophet, not just to him, but to all of Israel. And then the angel of the Lord shows up, tells him you're going to be a hero. God's not with us. I'm sending you. It's going to be good. But, but, so he, get, he gets an angel. He, get, he gets a prophet. He gets an angel. He gets God. And now he gets what's called a theophany, where God himself shows up and consumes the offering right in his presence. You would think, okay, now he picks up, he goes, he rallies the men, and he goes and he destroys Midian. Not Gideon. But the Lord said to him, peace, don't be afraid. You're not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it the Lord is peace. To this day, it stands in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. He still has not worshiped God. He's just built him a bunch of stones. The same night, the Lord said to him, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, tear down your father's altar to Baal, to Baal, and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of it, uh, on top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took 10 of his servants in broad, nope, nope, nope. 
and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the men of the town, he did it at night rather than the daytime. In the morning, when the men of the town got up, there was Baal's all altar demolished and the Asherah pole uh, beside it cut down and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. And they asked each other, who did this? And when they carefully investigated, they were told Gideon, the son of Joash, did it. And the men of the town demanded Joash, bring out your son. He must die because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Now, Joash, Baal's, uh, uh, Gideon's dad, he's got some guts here. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal is really a God, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So that day they called Gideon, Jerubbaal, let Baal contend for himself. Uh, let Baal contend. Uh, that's kind of his new name. Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other Eastern peoples joined forces and crossed the Jordan and camped near the Valley of Jezreel. The spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew and, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abiezrites. To follow him, he sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to, to arms and also into Asher, Zebulun and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet them. Now, this guy, this, this person, besides the disciples of Jesus in the New Testament, has gotten more signs, more visitations, more theophanies, and more assurances than any other person in history from the God of the universe. Maybe you could argue that Moses got more when he went and he called down all the plagues on Egypt. Maybe. This guy keeps saying, yes, but if, yes, but if, yes, but if, yes, but if, and God go, and, and even when he does obey God, he does it in secret because he doesn't want to be found out. And then the spirit comes upon him. And by the way, that's different than the spirit dwelling within us. In the Old Testament, the person doesn't necessarily have to cooperate with God. It doesn't change their character. It's just like we would call, talk about an anointing, that he now has the ability to do things that God calls him to do, but that he also has the ability to misuse what God has entrusted to him. So you've got Gideon. He's now, because God told him to, he called together all the different tribes, and you've got the Amalekites and the Midianites all gathering together down in this area. Gideon said to God, after all these assurances, if you will save Israel by my hand as you promised. You see this, right? God promises, and I say, if you're going to do what you said and promised you will do then. Is this sounding familiar to any of us and how we deal with God? We're moving into the fleece stage. See, Barak's name, or excuse me, that's last week. Gideon's name is Hack. That's his name. That's what his name means. One who divides stuff up. And even when he's dealing with God, he's like, yes, but. If this is true, then. He's not a faithful man. 
He's a fearful man. And God is going to use an unexpected person to do an impossible thing in a ridiculous way, as is his way. Gideon said, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised, look, I will place a wolf fleece on the threshing floor. And if the dew, if there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, when I, uh, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that's what happened. Gideon rose early the next day and he squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew with a bowl full of water. <clears throat> and then he gathered all the people and they went and they smited the, nope. Then Gideon said to God, don't be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. This time make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. And that night, God did it. Only the fleece was dry and the ground was covered with dew. Early in the morning, Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands in order that Israel may not boast against me of their own strength that saved her Announce to the people, anyone who trembles with fear can turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, there's still too many men. Take them down to the water and I will sift them for you. Sift them for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. If I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. And there the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. 300 men lapped with their hands to their mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other men go, each to his own place. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and the trumpets of the others. Do you ask God time and time again, Lord, am I supposed to do this? Am I supposed to say this? Am I supposed to give this? Lord, am I not supposed to give this? Am I not? Do, do you ask and then when he kind of gives you some sense or nudge or assurance, do you ask again? Because I know that I've laid out a few fleeces in my day and instead of coming back soaking wet or bone dry, they come back like a towel just got out of the dryer. You know, when you're not sure if it's completely dry, it's warm and you're like, is it still is it still wet? Because I don't get the kind of assurance that Gideon gets. And I think there's a reason. I think the reason is God has already told me who he is, what he's going to do, and what he expects of me. Whether it be in these specific circumstances or not, I don't, not always. But this man has had more assurance. And now God has called it down so he can't take pride in himself. And then he, he gives him one more. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. During the night, the Lord said to Gideon, get up, go down against the camp because I'm gonna give it, to you, give it into your hands. If you're still afraid to attack, go down to the camp and your, with your servant Pura and listen to what they are saying. Afterwards, you will be encouraged and you'll attack the camp. So he and Pura, 
his servant, went down to the outpost of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had, had, had settled in the valley thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand of the seashore. 300 against hundreds of thousands. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling his friend a dream. I had a dream, he said. Uh, a round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. How the interpreter got what he got from a barley loaf knocking down a tent, I don't know. But his friend responded, this can, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. And I'm going to read one more verse. When, when Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped God. First time he worships God. First time he submits himself to God. First time he leans forward in order to kiss the ring finger of God. The first time that he says, oh, you're God. After all that he's seen. Jesus addresses this. He tells, he tells uh, Judas, who it's really doubting Gideon, not, or not Judas, Thomas. It's, it's, not, it's really doubting Gideon. It's not doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas, hey, he had a momentary lapse. And God says to him, you've seen and believe, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet still believe. Gideon has seen and seen and seen and seen and seen and seen and seen. And you know what Gideon did? He took those 300 men and he, and he put, he put uh, uh, lanterns inside of jars and he had trumpets and he put 300 here, 300 here, and 300 here, kind of surrounded the camp. And he says, when you hear the trumpet, you yell for God and for Gideon. God didn't tell him to do that, but they yelled out for God and for Gideon. And then all the, the, uh, the Midianites turned on each other, started slaying each other, and then they fled. And these 300 men chased after him. And, and some other people kind of helped, kind of didn't and and they made they, they all took the spoils from their from their victory and Gideon said just give me some of your gold and they put it down and there's a it's a pile of gold and he melted those things down and turned them into an idol and he and his family the word is prostituted themselves English word prostituted themselves by worshiping that idol after all that he's seen all that God had done, all the ways God assured him, reassured him, assured him, reassured him, assured him, reassured him, and God did an impossible thing in a ridiculous way with an unexpected person, he still gives himself over to something of his own creation. Gideon is not the hero of this story. God is the hero of this story. Even with unfaithful people, even with people that doubt and fear and are, and are paralyzed, even with people that are demanding God say again and again and again, show again and again and again, do again and again and again, exercise his faithfulness over and over and over and over again, God still does it. So no matter how faithless you feel, or how faithless you behave, God saves, God seeks, and God pursues. You can't outrun him. As Greg and I share a story, there was a former president who had had, had a terrible he got caught up in some addiction when he was a kid and he did something terrible to his dad's car and his dad had also been a president and he, and he walked in, he sat in his study waiting to get torn up, just torn to shreds by his dad. So when he was a teenager and his dad said, I love you and there's nothing you can do about it, so stop trying so hard. 
God says, I love you, and there's nothing you can do about it, so stop trying to figure it out or trying to do it your own way or trying to give in all these other things. Do not do what is right in your own eyes. Do what the Lord commands. See, this story is awful. Gideon, and I, if I meet him and he goes, what, dude, you were so mean to me. I will apologize. But I don't like him because I don't like me most of the time. I want assurance after assurance after assurance. You should see me when I have to preach a pokey message. You should see me on Saturday night and Sunday morning. Like, God, you don't really want me to say that. Are you, are you, are you sure? Can't it be about mercy and peace and love and gentility? And can't you just say, it's all good? But sometimes he goes, just trust me. But this story is also awful. Look at what it shows you about God. God is awesome. God is, we should be full of awe. The word honor, if you honor the Lord your God, the word honor is, comes from the word awe. If I were always honoring my wife, every time she walked in the room, I'd go, oh. That's what the word means. So yes, it's awful. Gideon is, is a terrible example of faithfulness. He's a great example of faithlessness, but God is the hero in the story, and God is a great example of faithfulness, of awfulness, of mercy, even to undeserving people. And he's still that way today. So if you're asking God for a sign, see the sign he's already given. Jesus. God left heaven to earth to show you whose you are. And he told you that that which separates you from you, God, your own sin, your own failings, I'm going to become those failings. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. And I'm going to die, and I'm going to leave that crap in hell where it belongs. And then I'm going to take the sting out of death, and you get to join me forever. What more sign do you want? What more sign do you need? I'm not saying God won't give it to you, but I'm saying that he's always saying, Jesus himself said, if you want a sign, I'll give you the sign of Jonah. That's the only sign we need. Is God faithful? Yes. Is God truthful? Yes. Has God ever broken a promise? No. He's going to do, he's going to use unexpected people to do impossible things in ridiculous ways. You're the unexpected people. What's the impossible thing? Turn the world around. What's the ridiculous way? Love your enemy. Don't hate those who disagree with you. Don't cancel them. Don't treat people like they're your enemy because Jesus says to pray for your enemy. Do not return evil with evil, but evil with blessing. When someone's mean, be kind. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, strength, soul, and mind, and love others as you love yourself. That is unexpected in our world because right now, if I, you and I disagree politically or on some kind of movement, the, what it's supposed to be is, I think I'm right, you think you're right. If we disagree, I'm right, you're evil. You think that's what God wants for his world? You think that's what God wants for his people? You think that's God's, what God wants for the people who don't yet know him? Of course not. 
So we are the unexpected people. We're the 300 who just said, yes, my Lord, and went and, and routed Midian. We're the unexpected people called to do an impossible thing in a ridiculous way. Not fight with arms or with chaos, but with mercy and grace and kindness and faithfulness and goodness and self-control. That is awful in an awful world. I hope you'll do it. Let's pray. Oh Lord, my God, when I am awesome wonder, consider all the worlds your hands have made. Lord, I remember when Job calls out to you and you say, were you there when I hung the stars? Were you there when I made light into darkness, spoke order into chaos? Lord, sometimes we just demand of you like spoiled children who want ice cream right before they go to bed. And I ask you to remind us of how solid you are, how loving you are, and that you've already given us any sign we need. And you've made us your own. So it's not just who we are and what we get, it's whose we are, and we will take whatever you give us. We pray this in Jesus' name, for his sake, and because you are worthy of our glory and honor. Amen.